When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. And I mean that in the sense that today's episode feels very historical. And we are thinking about an artist. Um, we're going to be exploring his life and work. And he passed away many years ago. And he is someone that I sort of feel like is a forefather to everything that you and I have gone on to be, both within our personal lives, but also within our passion for art. And the artist we're going to be talking about is called Larry Stanton. And he was born in 1947 and then passed away in 1984. And that was when you and I were just like three years old or something or two years old. We were really, really young. And um, he was based in, in Manhattan in New York. And there's also a lot of parallels with all the research that you've been doing for your recent acting roles, particularly in American Horror Story because I know that you've been looking a lot at the kind of 80s and 70s and 60s within New York, and particularly the kind of artistic scene that happened at that time. And um, we will explore some amazing stories. But the person that we are meeting today was uh, Larry's partner and champion, and is someone that has, in in a way for me, is, is so important because he has protected and taken care of the Guardian for this historical body of work that is so extraordinary. It's it, it's predominantly portraiture and of a time where many young men died from AIDS and were lost. And there's a whole generation that live on in these artworks. And it is such a great, great, great privilege for us to meet today's guest. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Arthur, Arthur Lambert. Lambert. Hi, Arthur. Hello. Where do you find you, Arthur? Where are you in the world? On Ninth Street in Manhattan. How long have you lived in New York? How long has New York been your address? 1972. Previous to that, I was living in Los Angeles. And what was it about New York that made you want to move there specifically? Well, my uh, partner moved back to New York. He was living with me in California. And his father had a rent-controlled apartment, which he was giving up. But in order to get the apartment, which was like $45 a month, he had to actually be living there. So he came back. And then I had started a business with a classmate of mine 
in Washington, D.C., really suburban Maryland. But it was a bank and it was small. So I got this offer to go to Los Angeles. So I asked Larry if he'd like to go. So he said yes. So we moved to Los Angeles. That was 1968. And he was there about a year and a half before he had to come back for his apartment. And in about two years, the people that ran this business in Chicago learned from one of the answering services ladies that I was gay. They were horrified. They got on a plane the next morning, flew straight to Los Angeles, and fired me. Is that gay people can't run businesses. They obviously didn't know about the guy who runs Apple. Who was who was that? Who was that who ran Apple that was out? The guy who runs it now. <laughs> oh, it's um, it's Tim Cook. Yeah, Tim Cook. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even think of Tim Cook as being <laughs> his sexuality yeah, on any level. I just think of his brain, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> totally. Yeah. After Amazing. I was fired, I, I stayed in California another year. I really liked it. This was late 1960s, and it was different from today because in those days, I lived in the hills, but if you wanted to go somewhere, you got in your car and you went. It took 15 20 minutes. Now, if you do the same thing, it takes you an hour to two hours. God. So, so we're talking about, so you said about your partner, and this is Larry Stanton, the artist that we're talking about today and celebrating. And as Rob said, you were his champion, but you were his partner, his mentor. You've been described as his adoptive father. You were obviously his close friend. And now you're a representative of this estate. And Larry was uh, Manhattan-based like yourself now, and he was a portrait artist, and faces were the thing for him. What was New York like then, and how did you meet Larry Stanton? How did he come into, how did you come into each other's lives? Well, I met him in 1967. Uh, New York gay community then was relatively small. I mean, you had Harold Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, a lot of people that were famous, and it was all, you met them all because it was such a small community. Well, when he arrived, he worked at a uh, coffee bar, you know, milkshake bar, and uh, people saw him, and they were so taken by his attractiveness that the word spread in the gay community that someone unusually attractive had arrived in New York who was gay. So I was dying to meet him. I didn't know how. Uh, at that time, he was 19. I was 33. So I didn't know, you know, <laughs> what the opportunities were. But anyway, I was having lunch at Fire Island Cafe that overlooks the harbor and the boardwalk. And lo and behold, he appeared right on the boardwalk in front of us. So I got up. I ran out. All my friends said I looked unbelievably nervous. <laughs> Shifting back. But anyway, I talked to him and I had a little cottage there. I said, if you need a couch to stay on, you know, you can stay in my place. So he did, and that was the beginning. And then when I uh, got this job in Los Angeles, I thought it'd be great if he came with me. But when we got to Los Angeles, I saw I was 34, he's 19, I'm suddenly thinking, this is a huge responsibility. 
I've got a kid that's just starting his life out. I asked him what he wanted to do. He said he wanted to be an artist. So I thought, well, maybe art school would place his talk. So I sent him to Art Center, which is the best West Coast art school uh, in, in that part of the country. So he went there for two semesters, I think, and uh, we lived together. And then his father got that apartment he had to come back for. But uh, Los Angeles was great in those days. It was Vietnam War protesters. We used to have parties, and these kids would arrive at our house beaten from these Vietnam, anti-Vietnam protests. So it's kind of an exciting time. And as I say, Los Angeles was small, very anti-gay at the time. If you went to a gay bar, you were in danger because the police would come in and they'd make up. They said, you were touching him. But people in those bars were so terrified, there was always like a foot between them. They just made it up. And then they dragged the person out and charged them. So uh, he went to a bar in Los Angeles that didn't serve alcohol. And it was filled with young kids. And it was perfect for him because he was drinking in New York. And when he went to Los Angeles, he stopped drinking. That was when we met David Hockney because I knew a, uh, a dealer in Los Angeles, Nicholas Wilder. David did a number of paintings and drawings of. And he had uh, a very successful gallery. And I knew he knew David, so I asked him, whether he could invite him up to my house for dinner. So he did. He went to David and said, I have some friends. They'd really like you to come for dinner. Would you be one? And David said, well, who is this person? And uh, he said, remember what I did before I came to Los Angeles? He said, he's a banker. And David said, why on earth would I ever want to meet a banker? <laughs> <laughs> so we came and uh, Larry he rang the bell Larry opened the door he told me later he said oh I see <laughs> he wasn't coming for the bank he's coming for Larry so, so Hockney has been you all became really close friends and, and as as an artist Hockney has you know, had a huge influence on on Larry's style yeah. and Larry's depiction yeah. in art. And, but he's had an influence on so many people. I mean, he's such oh. a brilliant artist. And uh, he and Henry Gelsoller, do you know who he was? Yeah. Yeah, we'd like to talk about that. So this was like your little crew that you were with. It was <laughs> you, Larry, David Hockney, and Henry Gelsoller, who was uh, a Met museum curator and an art critic for the New Yorker. Is that right at some point? I wrote for a number of magazines, but he was the one who created a contemporary art department at the Met. They didn't have any, hardly any. I mean, it's supposed to be the biggest collection in the world. They didn't have anything from the artists in the 50s, the 60s. So Henry created that. He had a show. I think it was 1970, called, um, well, anyway, it was a big show of contemporary art. 
He took 36 galleries, which is a lot of space, and he had all the artists there. Larry went up every day when they were hanging. He was so fascinated to meet the artists, but he was worried because all of the art in those days was abstract, and that's not what he wanted to do. So he wanted to be known, but he wasn't sure how that would ever happen because he was doing portraits. And portraits weren't that popular in those days, especially portraits of kids. People were afraid to buy them because they thought people would think they were priests, you know, because of all the scandal in the Catholic Church. So people then start to buy them. So when he was in the hospital, he was only 34. Um, so he wrote a will and he left everything to me. So I went and got all the stuff I had, like, 250 paintings and about 450 drawings. He didn't really start painting and drawing until he had his nervous breakdown in late 1979, which came about because he was an, a beer alcoholic and the only person in his family that really adored him was his mother, who was quite beautiful. She was Swedish descent. And he always wanted to make her realize that uh, he was somebody. Then when she died, she got cancer in the early, mid-70s. And he just couldn't bear to go to see her. So when she died, he was riddled with guilt. And he had a nerve breakdown. And um, he went to the hospital. He was at the hospital for about two years. And he met this wonderful doctor who was black. She was head of psychiatry at St. Vincent. This is in late 60s. It's amazing. I mean, most places she couldn't even go in the restaurant to eat. And to be the head of a big hospital department like that, it's pretty amazing. And she was an amazing person. She took him under her care. Her son had fallen off the roof of her building and was killed. So she sort of felt Larry was her replacement son. Oh. She adored him. He, he was crazy about her. Oh, bless. This is Dr. Julia Mayo. Mayo. Yeah. 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 Oh, you got just extremely emotional. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, sorry. It's all right. So talking about portraits, because people come into Larry's work now and, and everyone, it's like a rediscovery. You've, you've had this work. You've protected this work for many years. People come to it now will see. Yeah, right. So people will see lots of faces. He saw seven paintings while he was alive. That was it. People were fine boys. And um, that's what he was interested in. And it's amazing, really, that he was able to, I mean, so he he only really worked for the years after his mental collapse when he got well. He came out, it was like four years, all that work that you see is the result of four years of work, except for there was one few paintings before, but mostly he was so attractive. He was kept being asked to go on trips by older people. He went to Morocco, to France. Netherlands with Henry Gelsauer, who went on a safari in Africa, 
with a um, older boyfriend of somebody I had been seeing. So he got to go all over the world and didn't do a lot for his art because he didn't have time to paint. And then we were visiting David Hockney, I guess, around uh, 79 before he got sick. And Henry Geldzahler was staying there. So that's how we met Henry. And Henry was, for him, was a treasure trove because Henry, when he was at the Met, as I say, he really found it, a contemporary art department. His show took 36 galleries. And he always joked that the um, operators, the telephone operator at the Met, said to him sort of angrily one time, why is it that all the calls we get, three quarters of the calls we get, are for you? And he said, well, I'm the only one here who's an artist or still alive. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, that was an amazing show that. It was called New York Painting and Sculpture, and it was looking from 1940 to 1970, for those yeah. who, who don't know about um, Henry's it work. And show. it had something like 408 works in oh. 35 galleries with 43 different artists. And it, at the time, it was quite... Um, not necessarily provocative, but he was definitely a controversial curator yeah, and he was, was definitely kind of, showing, showing people new ideas and people like showing, Pollock, Stella, you know, Jasper Johns, Mark Rothko at a time yeah. when Andy Warhol, Rauschenberg at a time when those artists weren't, weren't really that well known at all. Yeah. And he spent every day uh, when he was curator at the Met in an artist's studio. He was never at the Met, but he knew the art scene in New York so well. I mean, he knew every artist. He wrote a lot of introductions. If he liked her work, he was very loyal. And he got, I think the Times reviewer gave it kind of a nasty review, but it was a monumental show which created the world of contemporary art for New York. What, what was it like going to museum exhibitions and openings with Henry and Hockney as a crew? What was that scene like at the time and well, moving with them? Um, I didn't actually go to openings with them. And David didn't go to too many openings. He's not really interested that much in other artists unless they have something to show him. I mean, he's crazy about Van Gogh and Picasso. He, he only owns one painting not by him, and that's Picasso. Yeah, I remember one time when Henry sent him an artist that Henry liked. We're sitting in David's living room, and the artist is sitting in an armchair. He has a stack of paintings about this thick, and he's showing them to David one at a time. When he got up to about 10, David said, Oh, very nice, love. Have you seen my work? And driving up to the studio, <laughs> the guy looked like he'd just seen a ghost. And then there's that movie of him. Bigger Splash. The documentary now, or? Now, this is another one called Following David or something. This is by a kid whose parents owned a Greek coffee shop in Baltimore. And his ambition was to have David look at his work and give him encouragement. He spent three years on this one drawing, and they made a movie about it. It was a drawing of Marilyn Monroe from the photograph, and he took three years. He put some in, there must have been 
a hundred thousand lines in it. And it took him three years. And I remember David said to him, Oh, uh, have you ever thought of working a bit faster? <laughs> just completely like, undermined it all. So funny. Oh he just doesn't care, David, does he? Maybe it was called Waiting for Hockney. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what it was called. It's really but you've been you've been in David's work and he's also painted and drawn Larry a lot and Henry. He always said that Henry was not interested in photographs of himself. He was interested in seeing how he looked from an artist's brush through an artist's brush. So he said that when he was with Henry, suddenly Henry would freeze and he, David knew he wanted to be drawn. So he was drawn by everybody. Actually, Robert Mayfall, who visited us at the island, did photograph him. And I gave it to the museum Miami. Wow. So Robert Maple thought then, like, you were really at the epicenter of, you know, the queer art movement or art movement, not even I queer mean, art, just like. I mean, he's a celebrity in Los Angeles. People come up to visit him. Cary Grant came up to visit him. The only time. I've seen him nervous. I mean, but he had all kinds of other people coming up to visit him, you know, famous people. I mean, he was, uh, Johnny Collins was just there about a year ago when I was there. He's so charming. I don't know, have you ever seen, there are two BBC movies on him. The last one, I think it's just called uh, David Hockney. It's a terrific film. He is so charming and mm. interesting and gifted, the movie is just, you can't take your eyes off it, but about 20% of the movie, the BBC used Larry's films, which I thought was kind of neat. His Super 8s? Yeah. I mean, no sound, but they used his film because he filmed a lot of David Roaxi. He filmed David doing the pool paintings, which he did up at Ken Tyler's upstate New York. He filmed that whole thing. He did great films. And we did a lot of photography, but I did the still shots and he usually filmed. So so to get back to what everyone can see when they when they look at a Larry Stanton work now is these these faces of family friends, but you were saying about the boys that he encountered during the nighttime expeditions that he had around and about. But always in New York, it felt like the place, the location of New York was incredibly important, but it was more about the faces than the place. Why do you think portraiture was something that he was compelled to record? He was very attracted to those kids, and he was fascinated by them. I say it's like now, since they're almost all dead, it's like looking at ghosts. It's the only representation they have to show they were ever even alive, because three-quarters of them died during the age of it, I was too loud. But he went to gay bars and stuff and brought these kids home to draw them, which I think is it's not easy being drawn. I've been drawn numerous times by David. The last time he was able to manage the drawing, but it took three hours. You can't move. You're, he looks at you so intently. It's slightly scary. It was funny, I was there with my current boyfriend. We went out to Venice Beach, and there was a Chinese guy 
sitting on the boardwalk, did your portrait in 30 minutes. So I went back today. I said, why not someone who must be a lot better than you? He does his work <laughs> in 30. You take three hours. <laughs> He's a lot better. <laughs> did Larry always paint from reality? Did he ever give himself any license to embellish the faces or but mostly he sat sitting across me he drew painting he did he did it from memory photographs but the drawings were direct confrontation which is why i think on the whole the drawings are better so when larry passed you had all of his estate you had all of his paintings and his drawings you had his super eight films you had his sketchbooks he kept a diary yeah so there was some advantage uh the fact that he wasn't commercial i mean he never sold anything so i had everything when he died was he quite shy about showing his works he didn't exhibit much in his lifetime no he was a little shy there's always a thing i mean you're directly represented there and uh yeah, if someone doesn't like it, it's disheartening and kind of immediate. So he was a bit shy. But he didn't get offers of many shows. I mean, we had, maybe there were four shows. And Henry got him a grant to do Prince. And he, I think he got a couple of grants. The portrait, there's a PS91, which is city-owned. And they have shows there of ours who aren't very well known. And he had a show there so so for you when you had all this work how did you know or how did you f instinctively feel that you wanted to protect it and live with it because you live with his work you have done for the last like 40 years um, what, what compelled you to keep this work around and to and to you know protect it knowing that it was hopefully going to have a life because you we're seeing the work now is incredible things we can go on to talk about but at the time you said that nothing was sold it's quite a, a lot of you know material to kind of i guess be burdened with in some ways i mean i love looking at it but i thought other people should have that privilege so i was very anxious to get it out there so i created a website yeah. just to show his work five years later I added two bits on the website, paintings for sale and drawings for sale. Within two hours of putting those, putting them up, I had two sales. I mean, I was absolutely amazed. I don't know, were people just sitting on the site? I had no idea how that happened. But that's why I sold quite a lot. How did you know it was time to sell? If you'd held on to them for that long, how did you know that that was the moment that you could let them go? And was that really emotional for you to then suddenly do that? No, it was emotional for me to get the work out in people's hands so that they could bond with it. But, um, I mean, I had 450 drawings. I mean, how many am I selling on site? It didn't seem to be taking down the collection that much. But it gradually grew, and I eventually sold, I don't know, maybe a thousand works over the site. Wow. And then through Fabio, we got these galleries. So I don't sell them anymore. The first thing they wanted me to do was take the 
selling and drawing. Disable that website. link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this Fabio that you're mentioning is, is Fabio Churstich, and he has been very closely involved in kind of letting a whole new generation in a way to discover the work of Larry and has been involved in some beautiful projects, including a really great Apartamento um, monograph that was recently released. How did you get to meet Fabio? I met him because he was interested in another artist called Patrick Angus. And Patrick, we had a show of Larry's work after he died that David and Henry curated. And it was funny because a lot of the drawings of boys had their name and phone number on the drawing. And Henry being, you know, I was very nervous whether that was going to be a problem. But of course, they were all dead. So no one ever, none of them ever saw anything. Anyway, we never had a problem with that. And this gallery owner, David Shawley Coles, agreed to give up his gallery for the show. Then the first book was published, one by Twelve Trees Press, Twin Palm, and uh, that was in the Museum of Modern Art bookstore. And Patrick Angus was working there. He saw the book, and he felt that here was an artist he had so much in common with. They were both figurative artists, you know, realists. He called me up right away and said, he loved Larry's work. He wrote a letter to the gallery and said how thrilled he was that they were putting Larry's work up. And so I became friends with him after that. And of course, he was another one, died of AIDS. And Fabio actually, he hadn't sold much. In fact, we knew the mother who lived in Santa Barbara, had a lot of his work. They were very, very anti-gay. Her husband wouldn't have anything to do with his son because he was queer. Didn't want to hear from him again. So the mother lost all contact. But when Fabio showed up, she said he was the first gay person she had ever met in her life. And she wanted to know if he were happy and stuff. So she completely changed. And the next time he went, the whole house had been painted white. And all of his work was all over the wall. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And then, so he has, he has a big collection. Most of it came from the mother. She had no idea that her son had any credentials. Wow. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I mean, and Patrick Angus now is, you know, people have discovered him, like rediscovered Hugh Steers, you know, and Larry's part of that conversation. So how did, so Fabio connected with you about the work of Larry's? And then also I, I knew about Larry's work because I was introduced to it by uh, director, actor Joe Mantello, who's a good friend of mine and I work with him. And he said that Daniel Cooney Gallery, who I've met Daniel, is an incredible gallerist in Chelsea, in New York and in Manhattan. And he's got like amazing works there. And there are so many champions around that when they discover Larry's work, they're just screaming it from the rooftops. And what does that feel like now for you and, and, uh, and seeing this happen? And is it a happy, sad, you know, emotional? No, it's happy. When I was with him at the hospital just before he died, he looked at me, maybe an emotional on this, and he said, try to think of something that will help you remember me after I'm gone. Like I would have forgotten him. And then he said, I know, think of me when it thunders. So I said, okay, that sounds great. But then I realized doesn't thunder every day. And I thought of him every day. After he died for 10 years, I carried flowers over to his apartment and left him on the outside window box. They didn't rent his apartment after he died. I'm sure people wondered why all these flowers turned up in October on his windowsill. But he actually died in September. And the hospital kept him in intensive care for a week after he died, uh, his doctor said, what are you keeping him? He's dead. They kept him. I had to pay for the intensive care. I don't know if that's why they kept him. It wasn't that much in those days. I paid 12000 a week to give him an intensive care. And uh, anyway, we had a funeral. It was early in the period when people were dying of AIDS. So the church where the funeral was, was absolutely jam-packed. I mean, there were people lined up outside and couldn't get in. Wow. We, we see a lot of images online of your apartment, Arthur, and you have this incredible glass collection. You've built these shelves which go across windows, so you, the light seems to kind of gleam through and make them luminous in some ways. They feel like they're Venetian glass. I don't know if that's right or not, but... They are, they are incredible. The Brazilian kid that I was boyfriends with for a while, and there's a glass workshop in New York. So he worked there for three years. He made all that glass. And it's not easy because all of those things are done at the end of a pipe. So you have to have people holding them. I mean, they're heavy. As yeah, like totally hand-blown. Yeah. Very difficult to sell them. But in fact, we didn't sell any. I managed to sell a couple. David bought three. David has the biggest collection of Patrick Angus's work. And that was all partly because he liked the idea and he liked to help out people in need. Patrick Angus was dying of AIDS at that point. So he bought three. I sent them to London. It cost more to send them than it did to make them. Yeah, I mean, we can see a lot of uh, the influence of Hockney again is very clear in Patrick Angus in in the the line drawings, especially. You can see that influence there. But 
Larry also really inspired a lot of people, a lot of other artists. I know that Alex Katz, there's a current exhibition up at the Guggenheim and Alex Katz made work with Larry in. Is that correct? News to me. I, I've heard that there's works that Alex made that have Larry's face in, that he was, he was kind of drawn to him. Did they know each oh. other? Well, there's a painting at a museum in Connecticut, which is by Alex Katz, which had Larry and Nabil Nahas, who was the owner of the apartment, and some girl. It's a three. I have it on my computer, but I can't show it to you now. Oh, yeah, send it to us. I'd love to see that. That was his only contact with Alex Katz. Uh, I know that. Um, Ellsworth Kelly was fascinating. I mean, he went every day when Henry was hanging that show. So he met every artist. And of course, he wanted to be recognized, but it was worrisome. Well, none of those people did uh, real realistic works. They all did abstract work. And he just wasn't interested in abstract. So it was very hard for him. He always felt He'd never be recognized. So when he asked me in the gallery, I mean in the hospital, if I'd try to see if he could get some recognition, I gave him my word that I would. And this is how it's worked out. It's incredible. I had 40 years, I had to wait, but I would have waited forever. Has, has everything been documented that, you know, this publication that you made um, with our Partimento called Think of Me When It Thunders, like what Larry said to you, and you know, there's incredible works in there, drawings, paintings, photographs. It's just a inc- beautiful book. Has everything been documented or do you, do you still have work that's kind of stacked away that you're waiting to reveal again? We have one drawing that the witness said that they would take. And I have one painting, and that's all I've got. Everything was wow. I mean, I thought about that. David said, don't sell everything. But that was back in 1984. And uh, because he says, you'll never get it together for a show. Well, we had one show. And at this point in my life, when I did the website, I was probably over 80. So I thought, my time is coming to an end. I better get this stuff out because I've left it to his sister who liked him and liked his work. But she had had a a farm upstate New York. She would have just put it in the barn. And that's it. No one would have ever seen it. So I felt pressure. Good that it's it's out there, yeah. There's an incredible um, exhibition within Acne, the brand Acne, there's, there's a, which I think Fabio has been a big player in, uh, a whole solo kind of exhibition within the store in, is it Milan in Italy at the minute? Is that We're where we went? we doing it in every store. Fabio is going to Tokyo for the opening there. They're having it in Seoul, Milan, New York, everywhere they have stores. And in Japan, they've got huge blow-ups of his drawings on the sides they have those double-decker buses like they have in London and they've got his work four on each side 
on the bus. Wow. And they just rolled through Tokyo. <laughs> Somebody should notice. <laughs> yeah. and, well, and they, is, you've, you've done a clothing collaboration with them and there's like a blanket there's this beautiful lamp shade that's in there that I think sold out online now I saw that I was a bit, a bit upset about that but there's t-shirts <laughs> Larry made some t-shirts in his lifetime that were like striped painted yeah. t-shirts he gave them to Al I never knew he did those he was very close to Alvis which was the Philippine girl who was in his class when he went to art school in L.A., she actually moved to New York after he came back. And they were inseparable. I mean, he loved her. He just wasn't attracted to women. And Alice and you have become very, very close. This is Alice Sillett, who was his dear friend. And he yeah. painted her. I mean, the only two women he painted were his therapist, Julia Mayo and, and Alice. And he did. His sister. Oh, his sister. A, a nice sister. Actually, I think he painted the, the nasty sister, too. I mean, yeah, because he, he did do a series of family paintings, didn't he? Yeah. Did his father, I'm not sure if he did his mother. That was such a, uh, a difficult relationship. Her aunt was Hilary Brooke, who was a big star in the silent film industry. And in fact, uh, when Larry was living with me in Los Angeles. Sister called Hillary Brooke and told him her nephew was living in Los Angeles. So she came up to see us. It was like Sunset Boulevard. Car, the driver was open, and then she sat in the back. Very grand. She came out and saw Larry, and uh, they got along, but she never came back. That was sort of funny. Uh, Henry Gelzer said something which I guess sounds kind of um, braggadocio, but he said that Larry was so beautiful that when you looked at him, it was like looking at the sun, which is kind of an interesting image, but very Henry. Yeah. What What is your ambitions now, Arthur, for the work? Like, there's incredible things happening, like people are discovering it. Like the Whitney's buying a work now, acquiring something, fingers crossed. That's incredible to be entered into the, you know, the Whitney um, American art collection. The mission is just to have his work more widely exposed, more people see it, and it gets in some museum collection just to uh, solidify his reputation. I mean, he'd like to join the Pantheon of American artists. That's what I hope will eventually happen. I, I think it definitely will happen. It is happening. I mean... Yeah, it really is. He's, and it's amazing how timing is such an important thing with art and how, like, and sometimes artists do get to see. I remember that story of Alice Neal as well, who was also making portrait paintings at a time when it wasn't as popular within the gallery system. And I think even she was ignored until maybe 1970 or, or a bit later, maybe for a long time. And it's really interesting that now when you think of Alice Neal, it's such a iconic name. And, and for me, I, I think Larry Stanton will also, you know, be that in, in his becoming that in, in, in our age, which is a really wonderful thing. My age, I don't expect to be working with that much longer, but never know. <laughs> Well, we're very 
grateful you spoke with us. Um, you know, one of the things that I found so magical about the archive, in a way, that, that you ended up protecting was things like the Roland Tech film, Thunder Every Day, that, you know, th- these kind of um, Super 8 films from Fire Island and the kind of documentation of that era, because you often hear about it as a narrative and then people even recreate it a bit like Russell just has in American Horror Story because he's gone to Fire Island and actually filmed there. But I loved the actual real footage and how alive and joyous and happy mm-hmm. and um, experimental everyone was at that time. Did, did you actually work with Roland Tech? Because he's obviously a very important filmmaker of the 90s, that kind of queer filmmaking. I, well, I was looking for someone to do a documentary and someone introduced him to me. I wanted somebody who really liked the work, and he did. Uh, we had to raise him some money so he could make that, which he did from all those films that Larry took. But all those films are now in the hands of this Peter Spears, who's a well-known director. He did Call Me By Your Name. Oh, wow. Nomad Land, and he's a producer. And he wants to do a film now, and he says he can raise the money. Roland Tech says he needs another 180000 We just don't have that. Then maybe that's what we need to put out there from people listening to podcasts, the, the fundraising to get in contact somehow and, and fundraise. The director he got for this allegedly Jimmy Made film is the director who shot Andy Warhol Diaries. Yeah, love that. So, what do you think it is, Arthur, asking you about as New York, as Manhattan, as a place, why historically it's always pulled in a really creative, queer narrative. What do you think it is about the city? I think the anonymity that you can get. I mean, New York has probably the biggest gay population in America, including San Francisco, which my guess would be the second biggest place. And um, I mean, he had his apartment here. He had Henry Gelzo here. I came back. He had Alice. And I think it's amazing that he was able to get so many kids to come back and pose for him. I mean, they didn't know that maybe the last thing they ever did. You've also met, like, there's lots of stories I've, I've been reading about how you've met, like, Liberace, uh, these iconic people. You went to a party honoring Iris Murdoch and W.H. Alden the writer, poet, and I mean, there was a funny mm-hmm. line that David, I've, I've heard about this, but David said that, you know, W.H. Auden was known for his very lined face and he turned to you and he said, if that's what his face looks like, imagine what his scrotum is. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, you know, you say that he's got an amazing sense of humor. You could just inc- imagine that. But that time, I mean, we hear all these names, me and Rob are bringing these names up, but these are icons of, of history, of pop culture, mm-hmm. And you were rubbing shoulders with them. You were like friends with them. Because we had this house in Far Island. And because David and Henry spent two summers there, we had a visitor. We had Robert Maplethorpe. We had Paul Getty. Do you remember the one who lost his ears when he was Oh, yes. He was there. Paul Newman's son was gay. His son was his first wife. He came and stayed. I mean, there were a lot of people that were 
well known. And this one guy who was sort of ditzy, who was all came over to Henry and David and said, "You should put your your support behind a gay art Olympics." And David and Henry thought that was hilarious. What artist can jump higher? What artist can? What gay artist can? What gay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and actually, um, Henry was the commissioner for the Venice Biennale for the American artists, um, I think in the uh, yeah. mid-60s, maybe. Yeah, some, was, I can't remember when exactly. Hired by Merrick to be the uh, cultural commissioner for the city of New York. Well, this has been amazing. We, we ask every guest, we have three questions that we get and ask every guest at the end. And uh, this, I'm really excited to ask you these, but... You're a collector of art, obviously, but these feel like things that have, have personally come to you in your collection. Your, your works by Larry, the, the glass works you were describing from a boyfriend who was making them before. It feels like you, you have acquired art in your life via loves. Do you yeah. collect art outside of interactions? Oh, really? Is it something? I mean, I've had this, these collections because it just turned out a lot of my boyfriends or artists of one kind or another. You've got um, a type. <laughs> you love you love creative souls. <laughs> but if I you didn't, could I didn't know about it when I met them, but it turned <laughs> out even my current boyfriend does art, which oh. I think is terrific. If you could have any if you could do an art heist and you could steal any artwork in the world and you could live with it and look at it every day, do you know what that artwork would be? Well, it would be one of David Hawkins. And would it be one that had you in or Larry in or Henry oh, no. in or would it be? A landscape. From... That's so extraordinary. Yeah. I love his landscapes. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's more interesting than uh, portraits. He's done of people. All of them are amazing. He had a portrait show here. And I was really amazed. Andy Warhol had a retrospective at the Met. It was followed by a retrospective of David's work, and I was there for David's work, and I overheard the guards talking. I thought the show was just absolutely glorious. Anyway, these two Met guards were talking. One of them said, oh, this is a terrible show. The other one said, the worst we've ever had. I said, yeah, people don't leave. They stay in the Andy Warhol show. People walked through. It was so much easier. But they come into this thing, they actually stand and look at the painting. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> oh, wow. It's all That's subjective. That's a great review. All subjective, isn't it? All yeah. art is. Yeah, they... No, but D David Hockney draws so many people in. Like, it's like... I, I saw it at the tape myself. That they're, they're so magnetic, his mm, paintings. You, mm. you just want to... You, you feel like you're in the painting or something. Yeah. Or taken to that time, you know. Well, especially but the I showers. Know. You know, the shower paintings and... They're the ones you want to get in, are they, Russ? 100%. <laughs> I want to be in them showers. Yeah. <laughs> the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Blue, I guess. You're Which you're wearing yeah, right you're now. you're wearing blue now. But what, what is it about? And your eyes are sparkling blue as well. I can see on the <laughs> Zoom. Know. What is it there's about no, blues, you think? I don't know. There's any reason for one's preferences. One just has preferences. Like some people like dark hair. Some people like blonde hair. It's just a preference. What is the best advice that you've ever received when it comes to 
you know, the protection of Larry's work? Have you had a lot of advice over the years of what to do with the work or how to place it or? Well, Charlie Coles, who had the gallery where we had his after death show, said I should just get the work out there. David said, no, hold on to it. If the work goes, you'll never be able to get it back for another show. So I couldn't get it out anyway because nobody was interested in buying it. It was kind of fate that I was left with it till the 80s when it finally began to sell. I sold a lot online. I must have sold a thousand works online. But do you, do you feel, is there anything about you now that sort of wishes you hadn't you'd follow that different advice then that you hadn't sold as much and you did have more work now, or are you quite content with no, the fact that it's... I'm satisfied that it's out there. Who knows? I mean, 88, how long do you go on after that? So I didn't want to die and leave these works to somebody else or they might disappear. And then I had all that glasswork over Richards and that was difficult. I sent it to a couple of auction houses and they said, we don't sell work of people we haven't heard of. I said, it's beautiful. I mean, isn't that really a test of art, whether it's beautiful or not? Who cares about who made it? Well, we can do a post on, on Richard's. What was what his name? Richard Gallo. Uh, yeah, I think he has a website, but... Oh, we do. We can I mean, talk about that. Really you can't really sell on it because the stuff is so heavy. The last time he came back to the United States was probably 20 years ago. And when he got off the plane, they wouldn't let him into the country. He had his visa, he had his documents because he was HIV positive. He had all the right paperwork, and they wanted to know if he had sold work here, his visa allowed him to make work here, but not to sell it. So he's standing in front of this agent, and he wants him to prove that he's never sold anything. Well, you can't prove a negative. So they put him in handcuffs, put him in leg irons, and took him to jail in New Jersey. The next day, they put him back on the plane to Brazil. It wouldn't even allow him to call me. But he did say they took him out to the plane. He was still in leg irons and handcuffs. They explained to the pilot what his story was. And the pilots actually came back and said, gave him their apologies and said how sorry they were. And then with the rest of the plane, heard they all gave him a pound of applause. It's sort of nice, but you can't prove a negative. It's impossible. Well, this has just been amazing talking to you. Thank you for finding time, Arthur. It's it's an absolute privilege. For everyone listening, there is an amazing Instagram feed. It's Larry underscore Stanton underscore art on Instagram. And if you go on that, you, you can currently see the pictures of the installations in the Acne stores. There's images from inside your apartment. There's images of like historical archive images. There's recent works. There's, you know, there's exhibitions popping up all over the place. He had a, there was work in the show in London recently. 
um it's it's everywhere and then daniel cooney daniel cooney fine art uh on instagram that's an amazing feed he's uh representing the estate as well as yourself uh fabio is i think right is fabio running the larry stanton estate instagram feed right so you can talk to fabio if there's any ideas or things that you want to Mm. communicate about larry's work you can also get Larry Stanton, Think of Me When It Thunders, which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, book monograph, um, which has images of Larry's work. And it was published by Apartamento, who are obviously the amazing magazine as well. And you can get it from their website, apartamentomagazine.com. And I think it's about 45 uh, euros and they ship worldwide. So I really recommend it's buying beautiful. that beautiful. We printed 2,000 copies. I think we've sold about 1,000. Acme says they want to buy a thousand as giveaways at their various location, whether that'll happen or not. But that'll push us easily into a second printing. Wonderful. Well, also every single talk art listener right now is going to get online and buy the book. Yes. So <laughs> let's sell it out. <laughs> yes. And let's, hope, and let's hope the Whitney makes that acquisition soon so we can all see yeah. Larry part of uh, an institution like that. Arthur Lambert, thank you so much. You are such a generous, wonderful human being. And <laughs> thank you for, for protecting art and also just being a philanthropist in the sense that you support so many artists. Patronage. And we love that. Mm-hmm. You are. You're a legend. We <laughs> absolutely love you. And we're so grateful that you spent this hour with us. Well, so thank you for sharing you. your story. I know it was very emotional for you. And we're very, very grateful that, um, that you I went lost. through all those. I lost yeah. Larry, of course, my two closest friends, my brother. My nephew, I mean, it was just like a huge wipeout of my life. Mm. So sad. Well, thank you so much, Arthur. This has been wonderful. <laughs> and um, long, long live Larry Stanton's work. We're going to be seeing this come more and more into focus uh, internationally now. And it's, it's, it's a real yeah. privilege to talk to you about so. it. Have you seen my photo book? Your photo yes, book? you made a photo book oh. with Larry. Oh, and yes, it's like yes, 109 yes, yes. pages of all, all right. of these beautiful young men. And you photographed that Most one, Create. Yeah. Yes, I've seen that publication. It's Daniel Cooney gave me yeah. that. It's an amazing publication as well. I, th- I think that's out of print at the moment. So we need to get that in reprint for people. It's fantastic. Just go to Amazon. They have it. Go to Amazon. You can buy a used copy in perfect condition. Amazing. We direct everyone there. Thank you. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, Arthur. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.